Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's the year 1972. Riley Hartley finds that he, his family, community, and his faith are entirely indistinguishable from each other. He's 11 years old. He's living on Snob Hill in Provo. That's the beginning of the debut novel by David G. Pace. It's called Dream House on Golan Drive. It's set in the 70s and 80s in Provo and in New York City. Riley Hartley is about to uh, go on a trajectory of self-discovery. One of the innovations here, one of the narrators, is Zed, one of the apocryphal three Nephites from the Book of Mormon, who with another immortal figure, the wandering Jew of post-biblical legend, engage regularly in light-hearted banter and running commentary. David G. Pace is an essayist and fiction writer located in the Mountain West. His work has been published in, among other periodicals and literary journals, Quarterly West, Ellipsis, Literature and Art, Alligator Juniper, Christian Science Monitor, American Theater Magazine, and he's a literary editor of 15 Bytes Online Arts Magazine. And he joins us from the studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. David Pace, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. Thanks for uh, for joining us. Um, i got to bring this up right now. I, I, I'm reading from at least one of the interviews. You worked as a flight attendant for 20 years before? <laughs> I did, yes. Delta <laughs> Airlines started with Western and went with Delta. I was technically with them for 25 years, but the last five were on furlough. So that's got to be a lot of fodder for, for the riding that came later. Uh, it was actually a great... Uh, a great way to not only see the world, support my family, but to have some time to do some reading and some writing myself. So yeah, it was a great grist for the mill, as they say, for um, the kind of writing that I like to do. Any horror stories? I guess that's got to be a kind of a stressful <laughs> job. Yeah, well, um, actually, you know, it's interesting because I was a male flight attendant. I think the female flight attendants get it between the eyes a little bit more than we did. So. Uh, with the passengers, but yeah, we had a few incidents, mostly with turbulence and somebody biting the captain when he was trying to handcuff him out of <laughs> Copenhagen. But you know, other than that, we just kind of did our thing and got people from point A to point B. Yeah, a normal day. Uh, the the, the, <laughs> the, the captain's hand gets bitten. And, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, um, you were furloughed after after nine eleven. I guess the downturn in the airline industry. That's correct. I took a actually a voluntary furlough. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a no pun intended turbulent time for that industry, and um, it did allow me to move back to Salt Lake City and to start a second career as uh, in the uh, arts administration field. So I've been a grant writer. I've been a program officer for the Utah Humanities uh, Council, and also worked for the State uh, Arts Council as their literary arts guy. And uh, so here I am, you know, it's kind of a second life, which I'm grateful for because it's more aligned with my real interest, which is writing. So Dreamhouse on Golan Drive has been in the works for, for several years. Yeah, uh, 1996 is when I started. I actually was a theater critic um, part-time here in Salt Lake while I was flying and moved to New York. Um, in order to pursue that. Curiously, when I got to New York, I kind of lost interest in the theater after 10 years of writing about it. Um, I was a stringer for the Deseret News at the time and for some other publications. So that's when I decided to try my hand at fiction. And that was, like I say, in 1996. Um, was Novel was agented under a different name right before 9-11. 
Um, and that kind of, uh, when that, when those towers came down, the publishing industry really went into a tailspin as well as the airlines. So, uh, the book was never published. I came out here. It, uh, was rewritten 5 million times <laughs> in the, in the meantime, uh, renamed and won a prize for the Utah original writing competition. And then, um, yeah, it's got a long and somewhat tortured history, but eventually um, a Signature Books expressed an interest in it. And I'm really glad that a regional publisher ended up uh, publishing it because the editing process really made it a better book. And because it, the editor uh, was familiar with this area and with the culture, was able to help me refine it in a way that I think has made it a lot better. There's a lot of uh, things in the book that, that really will resonate with anybody who's, I guess, lived in Utah for a long time, especially if you grew up in Utah. Um, and uh, Ron Prettis from Signature, he says, it's so Utah. <laughs> it's sending an orientation. Uh, I wonder if you'd tell me about Riley Hartley, 11 years old as the, as the book begins. They're moving into a nice new house up on Snob Hill in Provo. Uh, yeah, actually, the uh, the... The Snob Hill is is actually it's the a fictional Golan Heights, and of course Golan Heights is the contested area on the Syria-Israeli border. Um, so they they move into this. Uh, it's a, a wealthy neighborhood in Provo, and it's alternatively called Snob Hill. But it's because after the Six Day War and and the controversy around that. Uh, the folks there in Provo decided to just call it the Heights. So, but they still live on a street called Golan Drive, and um, hopefully that resonates uh, in the story because the story is also a contested, religious contested um, site, if you will. So yeah, they move into this new home, and uh, they don't really belong there. They don't make the kind of money that most of the people up there do. Um, but uh, and they have a large family. 10 kids. And uh, really what happens is, as in a lot of books, a lot of stories, movies, an outsider comes in and kind of tips everything over. Her name is Lucy. Uh, he's uh, Riley is 11, and he's quite taken by Lucy because she's very different from the other um, guests and uh, live-ins. She actually lives with them. Um, very different than the others that have been there. She's a convert to the Mormon church and is very um, very intelligent and kind of a, a reborn hippie from California. She has a lot, a lot of questions about the lifestyle and the faith, and I think it uh, is a crack in Riley's universe, and they have a lifelong friendship that um, that is uh, kind of the one of the central tensions in the book. So it's really about Riley's uh, growing up and uh, trying to figure out some things himself. Eventually he discovers that he doesn't really fit in. And I think a lot of people who are in a religious system eventually do come to that conclusion. And they, they navigate that in a variety of ways. And Riley does his, and hopefully what I think is a redemptive interesting and a bit harrowing way as well you uh i guess this is a kind of a de rigueur question uh, some of this i imagine is autobiographical um it is and um 
I uh, obviously have, I come from a family actually of 12 children. So I, at one point when I hit 10 kids in my manuscript, I was thinking nobody's going to believe anybody has 12 kids. So <laughs> <laughs> my two younger sisters got dropped off, unfortunately. <laughs> nobody's going to believe the truth. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. Right. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's largely based upon my experience uh, growing up myself. I'm 54, so um, 70s and 80s in Provo, and um, having a, a prominent father who is, uh, or, or rather, a father who was prominent in the church. Um, in my own life, my father was a professor of religion at BYU, and he was a very popular speaker in the church circuit, and. Um, in the book, he is not a professor at BYU, but he is an insurance salesman. And on the side, like a lot of uh, Mormon folks, I think uh, the religion plays a, almost a secondary uh, full-time job for them. And uh, whether they're a bishop and operating in a volunteer status or they just it's kind of their hobby that they publish and study and and speak about the issues that Mormons deal with. So his father is very prominent. Riley's father is very prominent uh, in the community. And um, and so that kind of amps the whole tension of the book because uh, suddenly there is a, uh, a hope for that this family is going to be kind of the poster family of Mormon perfection. And of course, anytime you talk about perfection, you're playing with fire. So that's another tension in the book is that no family is perfect. And the danger is when you start thinking that you should be perfect and that you should be hiding everything that doesn't make you appear perfect to the community around you. Do you wonder about the intensity of that uh, tension? Uh, Mormonism versus, you know, say uh, other religions, especially conservative religions, you think it's more intense in Mormonism? You know, uh, Tom, I think that this speaks to actually something that um, just came out in HuffPost yesterday. I was being interviewed by Meta um, Harrison, whose uh, sequel to her The Bishop's Wife just came out, which is also set in Utah. And I think that it is intense in the sense that, um, I've more, uh, as you mentioned in the uh, preface to this interview, there is a real fusion between for more for Mormons between the church, the family, and the individual, and it's it's pretty daunting to navigate that because often uh, my people and I claim them as my people still, um, even though I'm uh, not active in the church myself. Um, I think they have a difficult time knowing where their skin ends and the institution begins, where their skin ends and the family begins. And so I really wanted to address that fusion that happens uniquely in the Mormon corridor here, uh, of which Provo, you could argue, is kind of ground zero to that. So yeah, it is intense. Uh, it has a lot of the culture here. The Mormon culture has a lot of um, similarities to other enclosed, totalizing communities. Um, I lived in Brooklyn for a while. The Hasidic Jews definitely uh, appeared that way to me. And certainly there has been a lot of writing in the Jewish faith, the Jewish community about that issue as well. So there are some similarities, I think mostly not so much with other Christian sects, but with Judaism and other um, world religions. 
So I think there's a lot of fodder there for a rich literature that I was hoping to tap and that I continue to pursue as an editor of uh, in in this area as well. So you, uh, you do you consider yourself now an ethnic Mormon? There, there you have a, an essay that you can find on the on your website, davidpace.com, your uh, journey toward ethnic Mormonism. Yes, I do. Um, I tried very, 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 very hard to jettison my tradition, my culture, my faith at one point in my life and found that it was impossible. So um, it uh, that kind of propelled me into a discussion with myself and with others about exploding the notion of what a Mormon means. And I think, again, the Jewish uh, faith, which is very fractured amongst different um, sectors, is perhaps a model for where I hope, actually, the Mormon people can go, which is um, there are different kinds of Mormons, and uh, just as there are different kinds of Jews. And it feels very ethnic. I don't know if it's ethnic, but um, I think you could use the term secular Mormon or cultural Mormon. Um, but really, by calling Mormons uh, out in a variety and a spectrum of how to be a Mormon um, gives some breathing room for Mormon soul and a Mormon art and a Mormon literature to emerge. So, yes, if I am an advocate in any way, and I hope that this book, I don't think this book is necessarily, because it is a novel, I don't think it advocates anything, but if I am an advocate, it, it's, it's to explode the notion of what a Mormon means. And obviously, to be LDS is to be a member of that church, but um, LDS is just one component of a very large tradition that we have come to call Mormon. Looking at that uh, journey from a personal perspective, I guess you could answer this for yourself or for maybe Riley's journey, uh, but you described a fusion, you know, the family, community, faith, all, you know, very much uh, fused, and your journey to being an ethnic Mormon, uh, there's, I don't know, is there some splintering there which you then have to pull back together? Um, yes, and mostly you don't pull it back together. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's right now with the uh, recent statement of the LDS Church regarding a redefinition of apostasy to include um, homosexual uh, parents and, um, and 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 the relation to their children, what that means to their children. There are. I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but there's a lot of fracturing going on right now in the community and, and resignations and and discussion about uh, where the um, LDS church is going. Uh, my argument is, and this does happen to Riley in the book, is that he does lose his family and his community, and it is devastating to him. Um, and part of that fusion is the moral compass that Mormons... Um, uh, receive. It's a received compass. It's not something that they develop on their own. It's uh, very tied to the organization. And so without that Mormon compass, which is what happens when people, I think, when people do leave that fusion, uh, it's a very harrowing journey. And it's a very tough journey because you do lose the respect and often, uh, if not always, the intimacy of those who still see themselves as card-carrying members and part of that collective. So um, 
how that happens, Tom, I don't know. Um, I think a literature and an art that emerges out of this uh, gumbo <laughs> of of our culture and, and what's happening right now um, is promising. And um, those of us that have tried to do that and are trying to do that need to write about it in a compassionate and measured way because there are a lot of people that are going to get hurt uh, in this, uh, as Mormonism, I think, as Mormonism moves forward and becomes a, more of a mature faith community. And you've already answered this. You, you said you don't know how it happens, but I'll ask it anyway, uh, because I'm now turning around looking at it from the institution's point of view of, you know, church, high church leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, they would tell you their concern is, to use the Apostle Paul's phrase, a unity of faith. Mm -hmm. and they, you know, they're trying to they're trying to unify the, the whole institution and all the members. Mm -hmm. um, and you're talking about an ethnic Mormonism and a, and a vision where there can be a lot of different kinds of Mormons. I don't know how that gets reconciled. Well, it doesn't. It's, um, it's contested ground. Um, the church's leadership is doing what the church leadership is supposed to be doing, which is to try to hold the center in. Um, I don't knock them for that. I do believe, however, that Mormon soul is something that has not emerged because of that incredibly fundamentalist grip that the institutional holds on its members through this fusion that we're talking about. So the church's job is to do, the institutional church is to do what it's doing. The membership and the artists in that membership, especially and others, intellectuals, if you will, who have been much maligned in the church, in my view, their job is to push back and their job is to crack open a bigger conversation about what it means to bring humanity into the church. The leadership can't do that because they're, I mean, they're human, yes, but they do not represent the entire uh, humanity of this, this Mormon movement. So, yeah, if you're going to be an artist, you're going to be a writer, you're going to be an intellectual, you're going to be a, a thinker, then you're naturally going to come up against the LDS church hierarchy. Um, and I think that we've seen this happen already with the blacks in the priesthood. Um, you can talk all you want about how that happened, that the blacks received the priesthood in 1978, but you can't tell me that the membership and the pressures uh, from outside the church didn't play a role in that. And that's the role that I think I'm, I'm calling out uh, for my own people to, to um, engage in. If you just joined us, we're talking with David Pace. He's a Utah author, and he his debut novel is getting very positive reviews. It's called Dream House on Golan Drive. It's, uh, the novel is set in the 70s and 80s uh, in uh, Provo and New York City. We'll get to talking in the next uh, segment after a break about uh, a real innovation here, a very interesting voice, uh, one of the three Nephites from the Book of Mormon who... Uh, uh, David Pace called Zed. Uh, he narrates here, and uh, he's a guardian angel of sorts to the uh, hero of the book, uh, Riley Hartley. Um, we are going to take a break. Just a note that uh, David Pace, uh, let's see his next appearance, I believe is December 14th, 6 p.m., Park City Public Library. When you get that in, you can go to his website, davidgpace.com, to read uh, more about this. He'll have a reading and book signing in Orem on January 20th uh, as well. 
Um, and we'll talk more about Dreamhouse on Golan Drive with uh, David Pace following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association. Recognizing Aggie spirit through the tailgater of the year. Information at usu.edu slash alumni slash tailgate. Next time on Living on Earth, the negotiations, the arguments, the island nations facing devastating rising seas, the potential solutions, and, with a lot of luck and hard work, the road to a viable and forcible agreement to protect the climate. We report from Paris on the global warming negotiations and the road ahead. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The year is 1972. Young Riley Hartley finds that he, his family, community, his faith are entirely indistinguishable from each other. He's 11 years old. A young woman named Lucy claims God has revealed to her that she's to live with Riley's family. The novel, Dream House on Golan Drive, is set in Provo in New York City during the 70s and 80s. And Riley goes on a journey of self-discovery. Uh, we also uh, hear from Zed, one of the three Nephites, and the Wandering Jew, a post-biblical legend. They engage regularly in light-hearted banter. Uh, David G. Pace's novel is getting uh, positive reviews. Uh, he, by the way, is literary editor of 15 Bytes Online Arts Magazine. You can find that at artistsofutah.org. And you can go to his website to see some upcoming uh, appearances from David G. Pace. That's com. Uh, David Pace, I uh, wondered, people, I guess, uh, who read your writings, know, know your story, know your journey, uh, raised in the LDS Church, now consider yourself an, an ethnic uh, Mormon. Does does that set you up as an explainer to to non-Mormons, especially about Mormon culture? Um, I think it does by default, uh, Tom. Um, there is a real work that needs to be done in um, elevating the Mormon story and Mormon culture to a national level uh, or global level. Um, and I believe that needs to happen outside of church, uh, LDS church uh, organs, um, or uh, what would you say, their, their official um, platform. So um, I think that what the, um, well, I, I don't know that I set out myself to be some kind of missionary, if you will, to use a Mormon term, to um, explain and to elevate, like I say, the the Mormon culture um, amongst other conversations and other discourse about religion. But it just automatically happens when you start coloring outside of the institutional lines. And the advantage, we've talked about the disadvantage of coloring outside of institutional lines in the Mormon church, but the advantage is that you then have the opportunity to be a bridge and to, because you've learned the language of, of, of the world, if you will, and you can then um, act as a conduit um, to outsiders who are, are naturally curious about the Mormon people and the Mormon church. Uh, we have a fabulous story to tell. And um, I think that the 
the problem with many of us who leave the institutional church is that we, we leave the story and you really can't do that. And that's what Riley learns in this book is that he be, he is a product of the very thing that he has a problem with. And that's both good and bad. So, yeah, I think that the artist and intellectual who comes out of this community has a unique opportunity to um, help uh, move the the Mormon community up what I call the abstraction ladder, away from fundamentalism and the kind of rigid thinking that I think the church hierarchy is too um, concerned with and is promoting too often. Um, you know, with Mitt Romney being a presidential candidate, with um, so many notable Mormons uh, succeeding in the business world and to a lesser degree in the art world, I think people are very interested in who we are and what uh, how we can enter the national conversation about politics and about ethics and moral um, discourse and uh, service to the world through um, um, humanitarian causes. So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, I think that you naturally become um, a spokesman, if you will, once you start talking the language that other people can understand. And Mormons have a very unique lexicon. Um, they, When they talk to one another, it's almost incomprehensible to some people because their references are so internal. Uh, their references are in a closed system that um, outsiders do not have access to very often. So my hope with this novel is that um, I can speak to a broader community. Obviously, the Mormon community is very interested in it, and I'm glad for that. But my hope has always been that I, it would transcend the, um, the borders of Mormon land, if you will, and speak to others. Because, uh, again, even as an ethnic Mormon, I believe that the story that I have to tell is very powerful, and it's my story uh, as much as anybody else's. And so I encourage everybody, regardless of where they fall on that continuum of Mormon activity or Mormon identity, to, um, to not jettison their culture, but to own it and to get out there and, and to um, expand what it means to be what we are calling Mormon or LDS. There's uh, there's some hard-hitting things in this book, and you leaven that a bit with some humor, um, which is you know which is very funny. Um, Thank you. And there's some <laughs> cultural some cultural things here. For example, the Hartleys call their coffee table the postum table, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which you, I don't think all Mormons do, but they they're they're sort of ultra you know ultra mm-hmm. ultra Mormon. Um, I, I guess that's I would imagine you would find that that important. You got you got to have some humor. I I do. And, um, you know, this is, as an author, this has been a journey for me because I think when the first draft was completed in 2000 and I found an agent for it, it was more of an expose than it was a real story about, you know, a full-blooded and nuanced story about a family and an individual named Riley and these narrators. Um, and, uh, And I didn't want it to be an expose. 
Um, an expose is something that's angry, that's got, that's driven with um, an agenda. And so it, the revisions that followed that, and eventually when I, I took it out of the first person and, and, and brought in Zed as the narrator, that helped me personally as an author to resolve some of the issues that had initially um, encouraged me to write this book. And um, I think it became a better book. I think anytime that uh, a book has an agenda, then it becomes more proselyting, uh, whether you're trying to build faith or tear it down in this case. And, um, and so, yeah, humor and, and getting actually into the characters um, who are human um, automatically cor- it serves as a corrective to an expose of that kind. And yeah, I'm, I hope that it is funny and I hope that it is warm hearted and tender and, um, and also hard hitting because um, there are some hard hitting issues that we have to all face as humans as, and as well as uh, Mormons. Tell me about Zed. You're calling him Zed. This is one of the three Nephites from the Book of Mormon. First of all, uh, for the non-Mormon audience, explain the three Nephites. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, um, my understanding of the three Nephites is that, you know, this is part of Mormon's scripture, um, is that when Christ visited the Americas, uh, three of his disciples were set apart or set aside to wander the earth and to, um, for eternity, or rather until the second coming of, of Christ, uh, to be a, a witness of Christ to uh, the people that they were encountering. So you have three people who have lived on uh, this continent and supposedly elsewhere, just throughout the world, wandering around as eternal disciples of Christ. Um, and, you know, this is not the first time that this has happened in religious uh, scripture or mythology. Uh, the wandering Jew is was written about by Nathaniel Hawthorne and many other people over the years. Uh, it's a legend that um, this character named Asveras uh, was cursed by Christ to wander the earth until he came again because, uh, because of uh, Asveras's cruelty during the crucifixion. So, um, yeah, we have this Zed character, which comes from actually a short story that I wrote back in 2011. And um, really, he's a guy who has kind of given up on the fact that he that there's going to be an end to his ministry. He doesn't believe anymore that Christ is going to return. Um, so he's a cynical. He's his other his two compatriots are a lot more loyal to the cause, at least in the short story that I wrote. Um, but Zed is more of an intellectual. He's more of a doubter. He's uh, He's, he's kind of a curious guy. So, yeah, I brought him in because uh, I wanted him to, I wanted a third-person narrator first off, and, um, and I wanted Zed to also be able to kind of contextualize Riley's life in a broader scheme of things and to show what it means to be ministering for Christ. Uh, Zed doesn't minister to Riley in the way that you might expect. He doesn't drive him back into the church, for example, but he does use the mythologies and the culture of Mormonism and the language that Riley knows to bring Riley to a redemptive place. And so that, 
that's the purpose of Zed. And I, I also hope that he's just a funny guy. <laughs> yeah, he has a he has a wry he has a wry sense of humor, and there, as you said, there are many there are several different versions of the three Nephites. Of course, there's the three Nephites that appear Orthodox version in the Book of Mormon. There's your version. There's the there's the versions in folklore, and you and and immediately when I learned that your novel set in Provo, I thought of the all the folkloric accounts of people's lawns being mowed and uh, you know snow being shoveled, <laughs> and it's and and some people ascribe that oh it's 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 one of the three Nephites, right? And it's um, it's fascinating actually. You need to talk to folklorists, of course, up there at Logan. There's some great Mormon folklorists. Um, or the study of Mormon folklore. Um, yeah, I think I wanted to tap into that. There's uh, there's the religion, and then there's the culture around it, and I'm a lot more interested in the culture and the folklore of Mormon of the Mormon people, and Zed, I think, is at the heart of that. The three Nephites are at the heart of that. And, and by the way, uh, there's another precedent for this, uh, John the Beloved in the Bible, who has, exactly. has, has a similar assignment, uh, if, if you believe the Bible. Um, to, to stay until the second coming of, of Christ. Um, I wonder if you could uh, tell me a little bit more about some of these the other characters. Um, the, the, the character of uh, Nelson, our guest, Gus, the father. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to find this. This is, according Doug Gibson in the, uh, the Ogden Standard Examiner, his review. The dad, Nelson, is the sort not uncommon in the faith, talking about the Mormon faith, who is one-third spiritual giant, one-third motivational speaker, and one-third pitchman. Uh, is that a fair characterization of of Nelson? Of Nelson? Yeah, I think he is. Um, unlike my father, who was a professor at BYU, Nelson is a um, he is very charismatic. I mean, my father was charismatic too. But in in the book, Nelson is um, the go to guy for um, a lot of different things. I mean, he is an insurance salesman, but he ends up in the course of the book publishing his own book, um, which gets him into trouble with by a general authority. Um, and he also uh, pitches a lot of uh, MLM type stuff, um, so which is also very common uh, in our state here. Yeah, uh, MLM. Uh, multi-level marketing okay, stuff. Okay, okay, yes. Yeah. So yeah, uh, be, a charismatic is is often used to uh, to pitch these new products that very often come and go very quickly. They tend to be about distributors and, and getting people excited about being a distributor. And sometimes you're not clear what the actual product is. It's really a lot about hype. And um, this is perfectly... Uh, mm, Gus is perfectly positioned to be that kind of spokesman. And it, it very much speaks to the culture of, of Mormons here as well in, in the faith, because we are about storytelling and testimony giving, and, and we do rely on one another as a collective to buttress our own faith and to uh, help resolve the stories of challenge that we all have. We do that in testimony meeting, for example. And so <clears throat> we're very primed for this kind of charismatic uh, person who is pitching silver rain, bacteriostatic soap, you know, or whatever it might be. And believe me, there are a lot of those out there. And um, Mormons are really big into that kind of thing. So Gus is perfectly positioned to not only pitch uh, soap, but also to inspire people in the faith to um, 
to live the gospel as he believes they should, which is that he believes that individuals have the right to revelation as much as prophets do. Uh, and in the novel, you say it. I believe this. Did this happen in real life to your father? The 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 father's charismatic figure is publicly called out, reprimanded yes. by a, a high church official. That's correct. Um, and actually, that is Tom uh, directly lifted from my father's uh, life in uh, 1982. I believe it was. Um, uh, Bruce McConkie was uh, very critical publicly of my father's book, uh, which came out called What It Means to Know Christ. And um, there was it was a bit of a tempest in a teapot, but it had wide ramifications throughout the church because um, I think at that time the LDS church was striving very hard to position itself as a Christian faith. And uh, McConkie's criticism of my father's book, which... Uh, suggested that we should have a personal relationship with Christ uh, was definitely brought down um, by his uh, very public castigation of my father at BYU. What, what did that do to your to your father? Well, that's a good question. Um, I've actually written about that in some in a personal essay, but it was devastating. Um, he had 12 kids to support. He was at BYU. He was professor of the year. He was all of these things. And uh, it was devastating to him and to the family. And it was uh, difficult for, it was an Abrahamic test was the way it got positioned. And it gets called that in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, he, he, he basically eventually took the book off the market. He, he made a public retraction um, but it was a long, long time in for him to get over that if he ever did. And I don't think I ever did. I thought, I think that was one of the things that really helped propel me out of the faith. Um, at least the institutional church, the, uh, the mother Joan, she's a, a beauty queen. Um, and, uh, I think she, she tries to make the family perfect. And, uh, you know, perceptions, I think, are very important uh, for, uh, you know, this, this family. And, and that resonated with me. I think that uh, perceptions are, are important. And, and that takes a hit when, when the father in the novel gets accused falsely of, of adultery, I believe. Um, Joan, Joan was very touching to me. especially mm-hmm. This resonates with me. She, she'd go to the LDS temple frequently to, mm-hmm. I guess, to pray for her wayward kids. <laughs> yeah, and um, Joan is an interesting character because she is uh, she's really the glue that holds all of this together. Um, Nelson is a bit of a fly-by-night guy. He uh, travels a lot. He um, speaks on these tours, Book of Mormon tours to Central America, so he's gone a lot. And it's really the Mormon mom who kind of is the ballast for the family and also... Um, in the case of Joan, she's also the mo- uh, the most uh, the person who is full of rectitude, even more than Gus. Gus is more of a public figure, but Joan Joan makes sure that everything gets put back into place. Uh, she has some control issues, like a lot of Mormon moms do, but um, she is very very strong, and she uh, loves I. I hope that the book suggests just how much she loves her children, but she loves them in a flawed way, just like we all do, because by definition, parents love in a flawed way, as 
children do. And it's that's very hard for her to wrap her mind around. And so sometimes, and this is the danger of a society trying to be perfect, is that when things don't go perfectly, then you have a decision to make. You have to decide, oh, well, I can perform perfection, hide the flaws so that people's testimonies of the uh, possibility of perfection is not threatened. And I think that's what happens to Joan. And unfortunately, that uh, comes back to haunt her and her family. And you, you, you think that does happen? We do try to hide our flaws. Uh, well, try you know, to, we're, we're talking perfect. Right. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I would have to say, you know, and I, we're walking out on thin ice because I'm, I'm stereotyping now and I'm generalizing, but I think that um, my experience in the ward, for example, was that in testimony meeting, nobody stood up and told about their trials unless the trial was already over and the conclusion was set in stone, meaning that it, the story, the arc of the story brings everybody back to the faith. So, and that I think happens in families is that um, we deny that certain things are unresolved and will never be resolved. I think this happens a lot with gay uh, children in families and that, um, and that, that can be pretty devastating and create dysfunction in the family when it isn't aired properly and accepted and embraced as part of our humanity. Let's take another brief break. We'll come back with a short final segment here. We're talking with David Pace. He's a Utah writer. His uh, debut novel is getting uh, good reviews is out. It's called Dream House on Golan Drive. More following this break. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. Some call it the silver tsunami or the graying of America. 20% of Americans are projected to be 65 or older by 2030. And Utah is a pilot state in a national movement promoting creative aging. According to the National Center for Creative Aging, Utah Arts and Museums and Engage Utah, all individuals can flourish across their lifespan through creative expression. Research on older individuals learning to play the violin helped change decades-old assumptions about the brain's ability to form new neurons later in life, and studies have found therapeutic connections between music and memory that benefit individuals suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, featuring the New Horizons Orchestra for adult musicians of all skill levels. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we just have about five minutes left in the program, uh, five or six minutes. Uh, we're talking with David Pace. He's a Utah writer. His uh, novel is out, Dream House on Golan Drive. Um, and uh, David Pace is a literary editor for 15 Bytes Online Arts Magazine. You can find that at artistsofutah.org. David Pace's website is davidgpace.com. David Pace, I wonder if you'd read us a, a brief passage from, from the book. Sure, yeah, I'd love to. Um, I think that there's, um, what I'll do is is read from, uh, Riley at some point decides that he he he's going to go on a mission, and um, but he hasn't really gotten that testimony that he really really needs. And so there's, in the middle of the book, Zedekiah makes an appearance, and hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler, but 
Um, this is from chapter 24, titled I, Zedekiah. And he's referring to Varus, who is his friend, the wandering Jew. I keep telling Varus that I'm not back in New York because of the theater. I gave up that obsession nearly 100 years ago. He doesn't believe me. These days, when I excuse myself from time to time, he gives me that look and says something like, give my best to Bell and the Beast, or say hello to Joe and Harper Pitt, referring to two of the characters in Angels in America, which he knows gets me all verklempt. He knows I'm off to see Riley. On the streets of the Big Apple, there are Mormon missionaries in white shirts, backpacks, short hair, looking like they're fresh out of boot camp, which of course they are. Last week, Riley allowed two of them to stop him on Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street in Sunset Park, where they addressed him in Spanish until he replied in English. After telling them he was from Utah, their eyes grew wide and the color in their young necks got pinker. Riley waited almost with as much anticipation as they did to resolve the inevitable question, are you Mormon? He knows what it's like for missionaries on the streets of New York. Because a decade earlier, he was at the swimming pool putting lifeguard trunks over his Speedo when his mother called to say that his mission call had arrived in the mail, that he should hurry home. He felt like his feet were in concrete, knowing this would signal the end of his carefree summer. Other people he knew were already on their way to their missions. Alan had finished a year at Dartmouth and was called to Japan. Other acquaintances were in Melbourne, Munich, Sao Paulo, as if the floodgates had opened and every young man in the valley had been sucked into some culvert and randomly sprayed out like fertilizer into what the church called the mission field. Would Riley ever know if he really wanted, wanted this? What did he really believe? Was he just afraid of the consequences if he didn't go? He needed more than a borrowed opinion at this point. He needed to, quote unquote, to know. That's a passage from Dream House on Golan Drive. The author is David Pace, who has joined us for uh, Access Utah. I wonder, uh, David Pace, uh, could you tell me about this? There's a phrase, um, empty armor. In fact, it appears in your dedication. Yes. Um, actually, the book was originally titled Where Empty Armor Comes to Rest, and it's a line from my, from a, <clears throat> excuse me, an unpublished poem from my wife, actually. Um, and it was a little ponderous of a title, <laughs> um, so we ditched that and went with something else. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Tom, because I think that the empty armor that I'm talking about in there and that um, Zed is talking about is that we all create this um, psychological carapace, if you will, this armor around our fears, uh, the fears of who we are, who we might be, and who we might hurt um, in the process of being ourselves. And only when we shed that armor can we figure out um, who we are and in, only in that way can our soul emerge. So this is a very this is a kid who's in a very programmatic system, a very uh, t totalizing system. Which is, uh, I think Mormons are inoculated from the world in a curious way, and he has to put down that ar armor, um, and he does metaphorically um, without giving out 
up too much in the book. And really the acknowledgement is that he is the very, he has become the very thing that he has tried to run away from and that he is as um, damaged and as human and as uh, cruel and as all of the things that, that he hated about his faith when he leaves, he, he is that, he is that as well. And he has recreated the very thing that he's tried to run away from. Only when we acknowledge that and find how we are implicated in our lives and in the world can we and can Riley in this case move on. And so that's the redemptive part of this book, I hope, is that he comes to that acknowledgement and Zed helps him do that. That's a good place to end our conversation. We're uh, just about out of time. Uh, David G. Pace is Utah author. His uh, novel is out, Dream House on Golan Drive. He's doing a reading and book signing in Park City on December 14th at the Park City Public Library. That's an opportunity for you to interact with David Pace. There's a reading and book signing coming up in Orem on January 20th. You can find uh, information on these events and much else at his website, davidgpace.com. And uh, I want to mention here at the end as well that uh, David Pace is a literary editor of 15 Bytes Online Arts Magazine. You can find that at artistsofutah.org. Uh, David Pace, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Our thanks to uh, KUER in Salt Lake City for use of their studios uh, today. And I uh, hope you'll join me tomorrow for the program. We're going to be addressing a question, should Utah accept refugees from Syria. There's a debate ongoing. We'll talk with a representative from uh, Governor Herbert and uh, some other people about this. Hope you'll join me tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Hi, welcome to the Bluebird. Can I take your order, please? If you sit down at a table in an unfamiliar restaurant and order a salad, there's no telling what concoction will actually appear on your plate. We have our bluebird salad, our shrimp pea and egg salad, our crispy chicken salad. Sure, you might expect the ubiquitous pile of leafy greens topped with some sort of sauce. Lettuce, spinach, and arugula, for instance, smothered in that combination of fermented milk, garlic, and chives that we call ranch dressing. But it isn't a given. The category salad could include such varied components as cooked potatoes, bananas, fish, boiled eggs, cooked beans, stale bread, whipped cream, or pasta. It might come at the beginning of your meal as a main dish, or if you're in Europe, at the end of your meal as a digestive aid. It might be cold, it might be hot, it might be tossed haphazardly together, or be a carefully composed work of art. In my world, where food and words are so tightly linked, I find this imprecision disconcerting. Imagine if the word cookie were as imprecise. When you ask for a cookie, you might get a circular bit of baked flour, sugar, and butter, or you might get a bite-sized wafer of steak. What exactly is salad? The word salad is from the Latin herba salata, which means literally salted herb. The Romans were enthusiastic eaters of salad and dressed theirs with salty brine, oil, or vinegar. So etymologically, the key ingredient of salad and the reason for its name is the dressing. Dressings for green salads tend to be salty with an oil base, but they can also be creamy with a base of yogurt or sour cream, or in the case of some Asian dressings, use sesame oil and fish sauce. Some contain raw egg, like Caesar dressing, which ironically has no connection to the Roman dictator Julius. 
Caesar salad was invented in 1924 by Caesar Cardini, an Italian immigrant and chef. The word salad has come to mean, in practicality, chopped food with a dressing, which is the narrowest term possible that would include both warm mustard potato salad and the infamous Utah potluck staple green jello salad. How else would you define a word that could mean cooked cubed potatoes with mayonnaise or chopped bananas congealed in a lime-flavored gelatin? With such a large array of food choices appropriate to the term, it's no surprise that the salad bar came into popularity in the late 1960s. Salad bars have further torqued the idea of salad. Items like pizza, drumsticks, sushi, and wedges of watermelon now qualify. When you next sit down at a restaurant, maybe it would be more appropriate to start your salad order with the dressing. Whatever does end up on your plate, remember with a word like salad, there are no guarantees. This is Lael Gilbert with Bread and Butter. Almost 200 countries are meeting at a Paris summit to deal with climate change. It's about flooding in Tuvalu, it's about landslides in California, and it's about the loss of things like the Great Barrier Reef and the kelp forests across the Pacific. So it's all of these things connected. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join me for Heating Up, special coverage on climate change from NPR News. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Donate your classic car to Utah Public Radio. We'll ensure that it's treated with care and returns maximum benefits to the station. Donating is easy. Just call 877-877-7501 or donate securely online at upr.org. We'll take care of everything. If you're interested about the donation process for a classic car, call us at 877-877-7501 or contact us online at upr.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.